All right, Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare him. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed porridge, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see the gospel, see what great things the Lord hath done to redeem a people unto himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want to focus on the verse that two manner of people were within her. That's what the Lord told Rebecca when she inquired of him as to what was going on with respect to the activity that was taking place inside her. Uh, last time we spoke of it in the context of that there are two people within the regenerated Christian. You know, there's the old man and there's the new man. There's the spiritual man, and then there's the fleshy man. And so we looked at it before with that in view, and the Lord was teaching us spiritual truths um, in that uh, lesson with respect to the two people inside Rebecca. However, now we're going to look at it from an external sense with the separation of these two individuals. We have Esau and Jacob are in the womb, and they are struggling within her, and they struggle actually during the birthing process. The struggling begins from conception and it never goes away throughout the life of these two men. They are struggling for the preeminence. Esau is the firstborn and yet his heel was grabbed by Jacob during the birthing process. I think that's quite extraordinary if you were to witness something like that. I think um, you would be asking yourself, boy, that second boy is really tenacious and grabbing the heel of his brother who has preceded him in the birthing process. The Lord says of these two that they would be two nations 
and two manner of people. Both Esau and Jacob had many descendants, and of these two people literally became two nations. Uh, Of Esau came the nation that is known as the Edomites, and they were given land by God on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And uh, all throughout their history, there is a, a common Um, issue of them vexing Israel, them vexing national Israel. And um, they did enjoy temporal blessings uh, from God as a nation, but ultimately they are destroyed by the Israelites. Now, Jacob, you know, his name is changed to Israel by God, and he has many descendants as well, and they become known as national Israel. And uh, the national Israelites enjoy some blessings from God, as did the Edomites. Um, However, their blessings are primarily to be understood as eternal blessings, heavenly blessings. And so national Israel represents a spiritual people with God. I'm distinguishing between those two simply for the sake of, that you would understand that there's two views here. There's a fleshy view, there's a, and there's a spiritual view, there's an earthly view, and a heavenly view with respect to these two nations. Ultimately, the Israelites, and that would be the spiritual Israel of God, they go on to glory and enjoy uh, eternal Blessings in eternal fellowship with God. Um, the people of the flesh, uh, not so much though. They, uh, well, they don't have any eternal blessings, but they uh, pursue the things of this world. So we see in the scripture here with respect to the description of Esau that he is a man of the field. He's a man of the earth. His skin is reddish in color like the color of the earth in lots of places in this country. You go down to Georgia and you'll see that the soil is quite red. And so there's a lot of places in the earth where the um, soil is the color of reddish. It has a reddish tint to it. And so that's um, Esau's color um, of his skin. And he's hairy all over. Um, Verse 27 says that he is a cunning hunter. So he's very knowledgeable in the things of this world and how to get along and how to get by and how to procure things from this earth. I would characterize him as uh, the term we use. He's a man's man. I would expect to find him on Sunday morning sitting on the couch watching football. Um, That's the kind of fellow that I would expect him to be. Jacob, it says, he's described as a plain man, which means he's an ordinary fellow and he's a quiet sort of a person with a mild disposition. So with respect to their natures, you have one fellow who's aggressive and one fellow who's quiet. Jacob's the quiet fellow. And... um, We read of these two down in verse 28 that it says that Isaac loved Esau because he appreciated what meat that Esau would go out and get and bring to him. And uh, you can appreciate that Jacob, being the kind of fellow he was, uh, was a mama's boy. He was a plain fellow and he was his mother's favorite. Isaac loved Esau. And uh, Isaac, excuse me, uh, yeah, Isaac loved Esau, and we need to recall, keep in mind that Esau was, in fact, the firstborn, and therefore the right of the firstborn belonged to him. He had the birthright. Just as Isaac inherited everything from his father Abraham, Esau would inherit everything from his father Isaac. Jacob, being his mother's favorite, we can... um, We can expect, and we do see, that there's going to be some familial uh, dysfunctionality in this family. When you have dad likes one boy the best and mom likes the other boy the best, there's going to be some problems in the relationships in the family. And this is going to manifest itself whereby Jacob, at his mother's contrivance, steals the blessing his father would have given 
to Esau. Now, but before we get there, I want us to appreciate that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage, for a bowl of porridge, excuse me. He sold it. You read about that in Genesis 25, verse 33, and also it says it in Hebrews 12, 16, that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. When you get over to chapter 27 of Genesis in verse 36, Esau says that Jacob, quote, took away my birthright. So he's got a different perception, a different memory about what actually took place. But we see here that he, in fact, sold his birthright. And so caught up in the here and now is what Esau is with no thought of his future inheritance. He sold his future inheritance to satisfy his fleshy desires. He would rather have, as the expression goes, he'd rather have a bird in the hand than two in the bush. He would rather be blessed in this world and have the things that this world has to offer rather than what things the Lord has for those in store for them that love him, what things the Lord has in store for people in the next world and in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord talks about that. He um, um, speaking about how people are, are caught up with the thoughts and cares and concerns of this world and the temporal needs they have. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? And he says in Matthew 6, that he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and this is key, and his righteousness, you need to seek God's righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, meaning God will add food and clothing unto you. He will take care of you to make sure that you... Um, that your needs are met, and that you can grow in the um, fear and admonition of the Lord. The Lord will make sure that nowhere in Scripture does the Bible promise you wealth. So don't ever go down the road of, if I obey the Lord, then he will reward me in a monetary sense. No, he'll be rewarded in a spiritual sense because you'll be laying up treasures in heaven. And so that's where he says, where your treasures are, that's where your heart is. Esau's treasures are on the earth, and that's where his heart is. And... Um, the Lord says, no, we need to be focused on heavenly things. So, again, in Hebrews 12, 16, it describes Esau as a, quote, a fornicator and a profane person. Now, what's it mean to be a fornicator? Well, um, in a superficial sense, it means that you are um, engaging in illicit uh, sexual activities. But in a spiritual context, what it means is that you are in violation of the first commandment, which says, thou shall have no other gods before me. You are having a spiritual relationship with other gods, whether it's your 401k um, plan, whether it's uh, your house, you know, whatever it's your, um, whatever material possessions you have, whether it's other people, whatever things that you esteem higher than God, whatever things you place your trust in, then you have idols and you have gods that have come before the true and the living God. And therefore you are a, a said to be a fornicator in a spiritual sense. To be a profane person simply means to be an, a coarse and ungodly person. And so that really describes, this really is a, the description of everybody on the planet who is not regenerated, who's not a uh, Christian. So it's a description consistent with someone who has no interest in God and future glory and would sell their birthright for some material gain on this earth. Now, so again, we keep in mind that what Esau did was his own fault. He was hungry, and so he sold his birthright. He ate, and he drank, and he satisfied his flesh. 
In verse 34 of Genesis 25, it says quite clearly then, after he had done that, he, quote, rose up and went his way. He went his way. He went the way that men go. Um, I think frequently of that song by Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I'm like, well, you're toast, bud, if you did it your way. Because if you do it God's way, you go to glory. But if you do it your way, if you go your way, and it says he went his way, well, then you're going to go the way of perdition. You are in the broad way going through the wide gate which leadeth to destruction. That is the way of man. So, again, Esau despised his birthright. That's how that verse concludes with verse 34. He rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the Lord is telling us what's in Esau's heart. That is what he did. He is responsible for what he did. Now, let's talk about Jacob for just a minute here. Jacob, we see, was not charitable towards his brother. Um, In Romans 12, verse 20, God tells us that if our enemy hungers, we are to feed him. If he thirsts, we are to give him drink. Well, If we're supposed to do that to an enemy, how much more should we do it to our brother? Well, certainly uh, we should do it to our brother. So what we have set before us are two brothers, and I want us to appreciate that they are both sinners. And yet God says in Genesis 25, 23, that they are two manner of people. Right now, all I can see is that they're both very much alike. They are both um, somewhat narcissistic and about dealing with their own concerns. So why are they said to be two manner of people? Again, all men are sinners, and that both brothers are very much alike. They both would be cast in the lake of fire on judgment day if God does not intervene. And so God does intervene, and he intervenes in Jacob's life. God elects or God chooses Jacob to give him eternal life. God chooses to save Jacob and not Esau. And this he does before they are born. It's in verse 23, before the birth of the children um, take place, that he says that they are two manner of people. If God had not chosen Jacob, of Jacob, it would also have been said that he was a fornicator and a profane person. But God did choose him and God did not choose Esau. And so when people hear of the doctrine of election, which is really what I'm setting before us today because it's, um, it's manifest in these two uh, boys here, when people think of the doctrine of election or they hear of it, they will often object or question and say, well, that doesn't seem fair to me that God would choose one and not the other. And so as I move forward with this discussion about God choosing one and not the other, again, we need to keep in mind that, a- that Esau sold his birthright. He is responsible for what he did, as are all men. Everywhere in the Bible is the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Um, So let's consider this notion with respect to what God has done. Is it fair or is it not fair? Or do we really, can we really even enter into that kind of a discussion? Is it for us to make that determination? So let's think about what would be fair, and let's start with Adam and Eve. Let's go right back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, or chapter 2, and let's see what is fair. What would you deem to be fair? So let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. I'll read verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, speaking to Adam, saying, 
Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Very clear what the Lord has said here. Okay, there's, the, there's a garden. It contains lots of trees in it. He, God says you can eat of every single one you want except for one. And the day that you eat from that one tree, thou shalt surely die. In the Hebrew, it's, it's in dying you shall die. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, the Lord says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. Just because you give birth to a child doesn't mean that that soul belongs to you. That soul belongs to God. Your soul belongs to God, and so does the soul of all your ch children. And then the Lord says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. No ambiguity there. Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So very clear here. We have three very clear admonitions that if you sin, you are going to die. So when Adam and Eve sinned, having been told that they would die if they sinned, one would think they would have immediately dropped to the ground, on, you know, just been dead on their feet, right down. But that's not what happened. Um, there are always two deaths to be uh, considered in the Bible. In one of the hymns we read today, it talked about the second birth. Well, there are two deaths. There's the death of the body, and then there's the eternal death of the soul and the spirit when it's cast into the lake of fire, which is a place of eternal suffering and eternal separation from God. So there are two deaths in view here, and uh, we are going to appreciate that both of them uh, apply to men. So when Adam and Eve sinned, their bodies started the process of decay and death. In Genesis 3.19, it talks about, God tells, tells Adam that he is, dust he was made and dust he shall return. So if you want to go dig up graves, what do you find? You find dust. Uh, people do things to try to um, prolong that process or to um, slow down that process. They embalm people, but when eventually you turn to dust just like God says you will um, and just like all people do. And so in addition to them going into decay, their bodies starting to die, they also suffered separation from God when you see in Genesis 3.24 that God sent them out of the garden. They were separated from God and were driven out of the Garden of Eden where they had had communion with God, where they enjoyed fellowship with God. Now, if God did not intervene in their lives... They would be cast into the lake of fire with all people on the final day of judgment. And that would seem fair to me because that's what God said would happen. He said, if you sin, you're going to die. Now, if you open up, take three steps back from the Bible and look at the big picture here. There are three times in the, in the history of man when God has proved that all men are sinners. The first place he did it was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore they were, the death sentence was upon them. Um, they continued to live for a period. They had more children, and then all the world again falls into sin again. And the second time he started over was at the uh, Noahic Flood, except for he saved eight people, put them in the ark, destroyed all the planet. And then when they came out of the ark, things didn't go very well, or I should say they fell into sin very, very quickly, and everything falls into sin again. And then the third time was on Mount Sinai when God um, gave the law to the Israelites. And while he was up there giving them the law and giving them uh, the manual on how they should uh, conduct themselves, 
they were engaged in fornication and making idols. Um, (laughs) He didn't even get back in time before before everything fell apart. Moses wasn't gone very long before everything fell apart. So they were given the law, and we did read from Romans chapter 3 where it says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Every time God sets a law in front of a man, man proves himself to be a sinner, which is what we read again in Romans chapter 3. I have before proved that all men are under sin. So on each of these occasions, he should have killed Adam and Eve, and he should have killed the eight people that came out of the ark, and then he should have killed all of the people when he came down from Mount Sinai, but he doesn't do that. Now, it would have been fair to me if he had done that, that he had killed everybody. So, again, we read in Romans chapter 3 about how everybody is a sinner, everybody um, um, comes short of the glory of God, and everyone is subject to the death penalty. When you consider the various uh, religious books that are written, only Christianity clearly sets before us the nature of man. Only Christianity clearly sets before us that man is a sinner. And again, when that Jehovah Witness came to the door, we had that conversation. I said, when you look out the window and you see all the mayhem in the world, um, you should find that in the Bible, which you do. That describes men, and so that's what you see going on in the world. From Romans 3 and from what we see in the scriptures, we realize that or can appreciate that man does not want to submit to God, man does not want to obey God, man does not want to worship God, man does not want to love God, and man does not want to have a relationship with God. There are none that seeketh after God. That's what we read in Romans chapter 3. If man does, it's because God is intervening in their light and turning their hearts toward him. Otherwise, it says, there are none that seeketh after God. Rather than having a relationship with God, loving God, and obeying God, worshiping God, quite the opposite is true. Man wants to kill God. So in Psalm chapter 2, the first three verses, the Lord sets that before us. This is the reality of what man wants to do. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why do people carry on the way they do, and why do they think they're going to go down this road where they're going to actually... Um, keep God doing from the things that he wants to do or things that he's going to do, and why do they think that they're going to kill him? Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. In other words, they all get together and try to figure out how they're going to oppose God. Not only do you and I do it individually, but we do it corporately when we get together. You can call that a conspiracy theory because men conspire against God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's the anointed? That's Christ. Saying, let us, that would be men, break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the bands and the cords that the Lord, um, that are used here in a metaphorical sense are the means and agency by which the Holy Ghost works in the hearts of men to turn men where God wants them to go. And what does man do? Man behaves like a horse, uh, a rebellious horse, that would buck the rider off his back and spit out the bit and bridle and then trample the rider to death. That's the way man wants to deal with God. And that's what's set before us here is man would cast the cords asunder and then then it talks about how they would um, uh, kill him. So that's what man thought he did with Jesus. Let's look at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verses 20 through 25. This is the occasion where um, Pilate is being 
um, pressured to crucify Jesus. He didn't want to do it. He's trying not to do it. I shouldn't say he doesn't want to do it because he did it. Um, he is resisting this process so that the people are putting a great deal of pressure on him. And so he's going to bring Jesus out and parade him before the people. And we read here, I'm going to pick it up in verse 20 of Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, verse 20. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them, the people and the scribes and Pharisees. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. Pilate, who's judging the situation, can't find anything wrong with Jesus. He has not violated any Roman law, certainly nothing that would result in capital punishment. He says, I will therefore chasten him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. Verse 23 of Luke 23, and the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison whom they had desired. In other words, they let Barabbas go, who was a thief, a murderer, and guilty of sedition. They let Barabbas go with all those sins. And then the last sentence, but he delivered Jesus to their will. That's the will of man, so as to kill Christ to murder God. So keep in mind, they wanted to, and they did, kill the Messiah, the Christ. That means the anointed one. The Bible tells us, and you can go through your list of scriptures there, that Jesus, in him, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's who they wanted to crucify. Jesus was God manifest in flesh. It's God they wanted to kill. Scripture tells us that, with respecting Jesus, says, by whom were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. That's the person they nailed to a cross. And so they took him and they put him to death. Now before, a few minutes ago, I had said that they thought they killed Jesus. They thought they killed him, but after three days he was crucified. After three days after he was crucified, he rose from the dead and is very much alive. Now that seems very startling to me, strange to me. Two things: one, that God would let Himself be killed. In other words, Scripture says He laid down His life. But the fact that God let that happen is very interesting. In John eighteen ten, Jesus speaking, He says, "No man taketh it," which means my life. No man taketh my life from me but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. And so this is the strangest part of it, or the most unique part, that having died, that Jesus rose from the dead the third day. Only Christianity has that. Only Christianity has a God who voluntarily died and rose from the dead. The world is full of martyrs who voluntarily lay down their life, but not one of them picked it up again. They stayed dead. So the question is, with respect to this doctrine of election and the fairness of it, is why did God do that? Why did Jesus do that? We have seen three times where God did prove that all men are sinners and they reject God's ways. 
and should all rightly be cast into the lake of fire, suffering eternal separation from God, which the Bible describes as the second death. And that seems fair to me, yet God does not do that. God chooses some people, not all people, but some people to whom he will give eternal life. Now, I'd already quoted the first part of Romans 6.23. Now I'm going to quote the second part. The first part is, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, that's the payment you garner when you sin. You're paid with death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift, and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord because he was the one who laid down his life suffered the death of the body, as do all men, and as God, for he is fully God and fully a man, he suffered the equivalent of eternal death or everlasting punishment. He never did anything wrong. We just saw where Pilate said he's done nothing worthy of death. Scripture says he did no sin, he knew no sin, and in him was no sin. And yet he died, which does not seem fair to me. So what is this all about? Clearly God sees things differently than I see things. The Bible teaches us that God created man, that he might have fellowship with him so that he might love him. And so this is the big picture. You have your Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. They both love the Holy Spirit, which both loves them. They are three, and yet they are one, they are united. And there is love within the Godhead, and so God expands that love when he creates men in the image and likeness of the Son of God, the image and likeness of Christ. So that love now expands to include more people. So God creates men with the ultimate intent that they will be in the image and likeness of Jesus, the Son of God, and they will be included in this unity of love within the Godhead. However, because man sinned and must suffer the consequences of sin, because God is just, if he says something is going to happen, it will happen, it must happen, and because the wages of sin is death, all men should die. If God does that without intervening, what do you have? You have no people that will enjoy eternal fellowship and love with God. Therefore, God chooses some people to whom he will give eternal life to. Now, while that does not seem fair, is it not God's prerogative to do that? Can you or I not give gifts to whomever we want to, of any amount that we want to? If I give one beggar 10 bucks, am I required to give the next beggar only $10 or as much as $10? Can I give the next one $20 or not give them anything at all? Skip them and go give it to somebody else. I'm under no obligation to give every beggar something because I've given one beggar something. Would I be criticized as being unfair because I didn't give to every beggar on the street? I don't think so, and I don't really think that's an issue. I can give to whomever I will and however much I want to give. We all can do that, and so can God. However, God has said, again, that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So when God gives the gift of eternal life through, Christ, through Jesus Christ, it comes at a great cost to God. It comes at a great cost to himself. God the Father takes the sins that some people commit, some people that he has chosen, the same people that he has chosen, and he imputes those sins to his son, Jesus, who is also God. So Jesus, 
God the Son, who did no sin, in whom was no sin, and who knew no sin, dies for the people God has chosen that he would die for, dies for the elect, and he dies because of their sins, nothing that he had done. And he suffers the equivalent of eternal punishment for them. Now, that doesn't seem fair to me at all, but again, that's what God has done. He clearly states this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That verse says it as succinctly as it can be said. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For he, that would be God the Father, hath made him, Christ, sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there's a legal transaction that takes place where my sins are imputed to Christ, and he bears the penalty for it, and his righteousness is imputed to me. And I have to share with you, that doesn't seem fair to me, but that's the way it works. And so we see yet another thing that sets Christianity apart from all the world's religions. Only Christianity has a solution for sin, a way which God has made to uh, reconcile himself to men and men to himself. So we have two unique things. We have a solution for sin, for the reconciliation between man and God, and we have a God who died to make that possible and rose again from the dead. So those are very unique things to Christianity. Only Christianity has a solution for sin. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, what did that prove? It proved that the penalty for sin was fully paid and God the Father was fully satisfied with the price paid. No other system of belief has this process, has a risen, living Savior who himself paid the penalty for the sins of the people that he chose. Now, Let's take a look at Romans chapter... Well, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. In Romans chapter 11, verses 3 through 36, God kind of sets a uh, hypothetical in front of us or a um, rhetorical question. In verse 33 of Romans 11, he says, the Lord says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I agree with that. His ways are unfathomable to me. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Now, to be sure, we have the Spirit of Christ in us. We know some things, but the depths and the riches of it, we can't plumb, because it's infinite. Verse 35, Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? In other words, did we give anything to God, and now he owes us uh, salvation? He owes us anything? God doesn't owe man anything. Verse 36, For of him... And through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. God has orchestrated everything for his glory and certainly for the benefit of those who he has chosen. So is this, is this fair or unfair? Well, who am I to say? I, just, I know that it is, in fact, God's plan. And so with respect to Esau and Jacob, God can and did choose Jacob and not Esau. Esau, it's, the Lord says, he despised his birthright and he chose the immediate gratification of the things of this world over a future inheritance, what he would have received when Isaac died. And Jacob, when he should have graciously given a, his hungry brother a bowl of lentils, used it to purchase his brother's birthright. 
He used it to purchase Esau's birthright. Both of these brothers are sinners. Both should be cast into the lake of fire, and yet God chooses Jacob. And as we study the life of Jacob, we are going to learn that he is indeed a sinner, and there is no reason in the world that I can think of that would be notorious of God's favor. God did not give him a gift because he earned it or deserved it or showed himself to be noble in any way. We're going to see quite the opposite. Can't find any good thing in him why God would choose it. And quite frankly, when I look in the mirror, I don't see any reason why God would have chosen me. God simply chose Jacob or you and me because it's his prerogative to do so. The Bible says, elect from before the foundation of the world. God chose people before the foundation of the world, before we had done any good or evil. So Jacob is an example of God's grace and his mercy. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 9. So if you would, please turn there, and then we'll close with that. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. And the Lord's going to set this um, reality uh, before us. Romans chapter 9, we'll pick it up in verse 10. Romans 9, verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah, again, that's Jacob, or Esau and Jacob's mother, when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even our father Isaac, verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, and not of works, but of him that calleth. Again, these were chosen before they had been born, before they had done anything good or bad, before anybody could make an argument and say, you know, I think Jacob's life was just a little bit better, a little bit brighter, and so that's why God chose Jacob. No, God is telling us right here, before they were born, they were chosen. 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I used our example of giving to a beggar. You can give to anybody that you want to. You're not required to give to everybody. You can show mercy on one and not on the other. You have that prerogative. Verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, or of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. if this is not about Jacob and about Esau in terms of their conduct or behavior, but it's about God showing mercy. Verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. This is God working in men. This is the sovereignty of God. Verse 19, thou wilt say unto me, then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, it's your fault, God, that I'm a sinner. He says, no, you can't say that. But nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? We are clay, and God is the potter. And that's the example he jumps right into, verse 21. Hath not the potter, that would be God, power over the clay, that's you and me, of the same lump, 
to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. That's exactly what God did in the context that Rebecca represents the one lump of clay, and she made, the God made two vessels. He made one unto honor, that would be Jacob, and one unto dishonor, that would be Esau. God, the potter, made two vessels. And God did this for his glory, which is certainly for Jacob's benefit. For if God had not done that, if God had not died for Jacob, Jacob too would have been a vessel of dishonor and cast into the potter's field, fitted for destruction. Verse 22 of Romans 9, what if God, this is the reason why this is taking place, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. God puts up with Esau all of Esau's life, and that shows his great mercy. His wrath should have been poured out on Esau, but it wasn't. Just like his wrath should have been poured out on a lot of people, um, but it's not. Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. We're going to see nothing but mercy in Jacob's life, though he deserves to be cast into the potter's field as a vessel of dishonor. He is, in fact, a vessel of honor, and we're going to see God's great mercy work itself out in Jacob's life. And then verse 24, he takes it right home to us. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So God has called, elected, and chosen people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. And this he has done for his glory. Had he not chosen some people, there would be none that got to glory. And so uh, many young Christians kind of uh, object to the doctrine of election because, quite frankly, they want to think that they chose God when the Scripture says the opposite is true, Twas God that chose them. But as a more mature Christian, I am so thankful for it because I know if he did not choose me, I would be cast in the lake of fire. I was in the Broadway, um, fixing to step through the um, wide gate into the um, destruction, into destruction. But God chose, picked me, saved me, and I know He's going to preserve me as He does all His chosen people, all the elect, and get us all to glory. Um, and I don't know if that's fair or not, but it's His way, and I'm the beneficiary of it, and He gets the glory. Amen.